Hello, and welcome to Methods, an exploration in guided prayer and meditation. My name's Jory, and up to now we've been exclusively releasing guided prayers and meditations. We're going to start doing things a little differently by inviting guests on that may have something to say to us to inform the way we approach our practices, and by extension, how we approach life. This segment is going to be called Being With, after the thought of Martin Heidegger, who saw that we are essentially social beings, and that means that our entire way of being in the world is oriented by relationship with others, and anything less is inauthentic. Or as a poet once said, no man is an entire island of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. These short segments are going to consist of a conversation, followed by a separate episode with that guest leading us through their preferred method of prayer, meditation, or however they ground and center themselves. Mary Jane Miller, welcome to Methods. Hello, good morning. Uh, so tell me a bit about yourself. Who are you and, and what exactly do you do? Basically, I'm an artist. I've lived here in Mexico for the last 40 years with my husband, who is Mexican. And we've both dedicated ourselves to a tranquil lifestyle and being artist. And in the last 25 years, we have been painting icons. I've been painting and he's been doing all the embellishments. So my listeners might not be super familiar with what exactly an icon is because a lot of our listeners are uh, American Protestant folks um, or ex-Protestant folks um, who may not be familiar with what an icon is and, and what it's used for. So can you kind of describe briefly just what exactly are they? Um, if you ever did any kind of art history or maybe you've been to Greece or Russia and you see their particular version of religion, it's always accompanied by um, the artwork that's on the walls. They call them icons, as in iconographers who paint pictures of the biblical story for the benefit of having a visual um, a visual help while they're doing their meditations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can imagine the pushback that, that I would get and that you probably get as well about, uh, like, what about the, the biblical verse forbidding graven images? Ah, you, um, <laughs> you start right in, don't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not a particularly easy question to answer, on the other hand. If we think, where is your treasure, there will be your heart. A Buddhist would say, where your mind is, um, there will be your reality. I think the cautionary instruction against graven images has to do with a younger consciousness that used to be on the planet, where we get trapped or fall into some kind of, I adore this piece of work, or I adore, well, I guess today even people are adoring their cars. Mm. You can't adore something physical. You can't even worship something physical. You can only worship things that are of the unseen world. Mm-hmm. And going back to what is an icon, iconographers try to record in visual form that which we cannot see. Mm-hmm. And often you see icons with these drawn out faces and they're staring into the abyss. That's exactly what they're supposed to do because when you look at the divine or when you look at something that's awesome, you don't tend to be laughing and fooling around and giggling and making jokes. You tend to be actually shocked mm-hmm. into 
something that's so much greater than yourself. Yeah, kind of that uh, mysterium tremendum that Rudolf Otto talks about, that uh, holy awe. But I, yes. I, I only ask that because I know that that that's going to be something that would come up for a lot of listeners that may be new to uh, contemplative spirituality, uh, maybe have been raised in sort of like an evangelical context, um, and maybe familiar with that uh, graven image kind of prohibition. But the the way that I like to to look at it is that those images aren't just physical images like I think that prohibition against graven images kind of can be taken further into that we're to have also, as it says, no idols. Um, so mm-hmm. our even our preconceived notions of God can be idols, you know, if we if we worship them in a way that that limits our perception of of what really is and what reality is. And so we can get stuck on those idols um, or those graven images that don't actually represent how reality actually is, but how we maybe prefer it to be. In our world that we live in today, we're often trapped into the kind of idols that maybe they're not religious, but they're definitely idols. We, Like I said, we love our car or we love our house or we love our job or we love our money or our bank account. These are exactly what the cautionary note is, is to be careful what it is that you're so attracted to, that you're holding on to, that you can't embrace something that you can't see that's pure mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think icons, they can act too as like a, a sacrament, you know, a, a visual representation of an unseen grace. And they kind of, in, in their best uh, way, point you not just toward the image itself, but point you beyond the image like any like any good religion is supposed to do it's not uh, supposed to point you at the actual customs and rituals and um, and theory but beyond it to what what the religion itself is pointing to which is the ineffable what I try to tell my students is if you sit in a room and there's a window on the far wall you have a little square that you can look out of and you might see a bird fly by you might see a cloud, you might see a car, you might see another building. If you go right up to the glass, you'll be able to see 180 degrees. And that's really what an icon will do for you, theoretically. Same with any kind of Buddhist image. You just go right up to it, and eventually it will take you into a larger space. Mm-hmm. And again, that space isn't physical. It's a space where you have more awareness. You have more of a landscape to look at. Yeah. In your in your work with icons, is it mostly devotional, like an icon of a specific like biblical figure or um, something that represents divinity, or is it can it be like a scene or like a story that's illustrated? Well, the word icon means human, so technically. Byzantine icons are about the human experience, and they don't paint portraits of you or me. They paint portraits of the biblical figure, figures that are in the Bible, the stories that go along. So there's narrative icons, which are all the storytelling of baptism and Pentecost and uh, the disciples gathering in the room for um, the Holy Spirit as it descends. Mm-hmm. 
there are portrait icons where it's a person. Um, it's the Virgin Mary. It's John the Baptist. But they are. They're just little windows. They're little images to keep you focused on the larger picture of what was the message that these holy personages gave to us through the Bible mm -hmm. in pictorial form. Do, do you find that um, that the icons have kind of a, a content of their own based on how they're produced? Yes. Or, or do you find that people kind of use them as like a container with which their, their conception of that figure fills that container? Um, traditionally, again, in the Byzantine world, the, the Russians and the Greeks and the Turkish, wherever you find Christianity in that Eastern area, they would have what is called a holy corner in their home where they'd put their icons up to the corner. And as you walk through the room, you may feel as if you're being seen. Mm -hmm. You may pause so you could reflect for one minute. It's like a, a stop zone in your house mm -hmm. where you, you know, you get pulled out of your regular, I've got to go here and do this. Um, but actually what people do with icons, I don't know. I guess today most people are just collecting them because they're beautiful. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. Beauty is maybe perhaps the thing that will save us all when we really stop to look at everything as beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's what your little film is at the end about how iconography has taught me. It isn't just the practice of painting and putting the pigments and the colors and the shapes down on a board. It's more about seeing this amazing world that's made up of molecular relationship, and it's happening everywhere at every moment of our day. Mm -hmm. So, so this isn't something new. Like when you talk about the Byzantine Church and everything, this isn't just some new Art Deco thing. This goes back to the fifteen hundred years. Yeah. So, what was the like first known or? or what was the first icon we have record of? Uh, the first icon, I think, and I quote this, but I don't know if it's actually true, but there's a picture of Jesus done in wax and earth pigments in the monastery in Sinai called St. Catherine's. St. Catherine's Monastery has the largest collection of 250, 2,500 icons, and it's the longest running I uh, monastery in the world, supposedly Moses walked through the Sinai, and this is exactly where that monastery is. Those icons are really what inspired me. Not the ones uh, that are at St. Catherine's, but the earliest icons, because I'm fascinated that these people, that let's say they're 500 years after Christ, they were artists like myself who wanted to portray this marvelous story, this mm -hmm incredible personage that they knew about and what they came up with are icons that i don't know if there have been any iconographers that have even come close to portraying the beauty that they captured yeah and i'm driven to try and do one and add it to the collection but i've probably done a thousand icons by now and i haven't come close to the kind of beauty that they those first iconographers had well, you're always your your worst critic, so. <laughs> um, I think most iconographers would agree. <laughs> yeah, the the only ones that uh, well, the first one that I had seen was the the Trinity by Andrei yeah. Rublev, and which it, it gained popularity 
a lot recently because of uh, the Franciscan priest Richard Rohr um, using it in his book, The Divine Dance, where he talks about the Trinity and, and how the very nature of it is uh, relationship and um, like a water wheel pouring into each other. And, and he talks about that there's a little spot at the bottom where there's a little bit of glue, they say, and it's possible that there was, they think, uh, a mirror at the bottom of the icon originally. Do you know anything about that? No, I don't. Um, I know that the theology behind the icon is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the triune uh, concept of Christianity is there, and they're set in a trinity, but there's a fourth component, which is you, the person who's viewing the icon. And yeah. it goes back to what we were talking about, that we are invited into these sacred spaces, uh, square of a window, the square of a table. It doesn't matter. We're being invited every day, all of us, into a place where we can contemplate where did we come from? Why are we here? And it isn't really to go out and create anything. It's really to get us more aware that we're already here. We're already here now. That we're divine people having an experience. You don't need anything to have to get Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um and and I think too, at least I, I mean I, I'm a amateur musician and I I do think that just part of the aspect of creating in the first place can put you in that state of of presence and awareness that uh where you're not so much mindful of exactly what you're doing, you're just kind of acting as a conduit and it's kind of going through you or like surfers talk about when they catch a wave, it's not them catching the wave, just it's, you know, them and the wave are one thing and it's just happening. And, and so I think that the creation of art can, can be like that too. And I imagine, especially when you're creating a, you know, a, an icon that's intended to be, you know, used for uh, devotion. It's know. a little like making the wave. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which um, that's a that's a whole concept I'll have to think about making a wave that someone could ride into a place where they feel one with the wave. Yeah, it's it's our whole life right now. It's so exciting to be on the planet. Honestly, there's a million different forms for prayer and contemplation. Every religion will bring it to you. The problem is you cannot live on the surface. You must live, like I said, about the window narrative. You can look out a window from across the room, but if you get right up in that window, life becomes much larger and more beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like I've heard the the analogy of a, a screen door. Like you walk up to the screen door and initially you're looking at the screen and the thousands of wires, you know, <laughs> interlacing. And then eventually your eye gets drawn through the screen to the outdoors Um I guess kind of like Plato's allegory of the cave too, you realize, you know, that there are things creating the shadows that you saw on the wall. Um, yeah, that's a good <laughs> one too. <laughs> so you teach people how to paint these. You don't just paint them yourself. You do workshops and, and teach people how to do it themselves to enter into that creative space too, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I offer five-day workshops using the same Byzantine-style technique. It's egg tempura. Okay. Not egg tempura. It's egg tempura. Oh, um, okay. And I tried to... I wasn't aware that there was a difference. <laughs> there is. Tempura is what you eat, and tempura is tempering something. When you temper paint, you're actually making it hard. You're making it so it won't blow off because you're, part, you're painting with small particles of dust. The idea is for what we would do in one hour of practice is the discipline. But using that discipline over and over and over, eventually that discipline of watching and being aware seeps into your regular life mm -hmm. and hopefully will change your regular life into a different norm. It actually changes your consciousness. You don't get it in one five-day workshop, but you do get an invitation on how to see things differently. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like engaged mindfulness. Yes. And at the end, you get a beautiful icon. <laughs> yeah, that helps. And that kind of yeah. can kind of remind you and take you back to that place where you were engaged and present and mindful. Absolutely. And I'm going to use the music metaphor because you're a musician. Um, you start by playing a song and you may struggle quite a bit to get that song down. But after a while, it becomes just kind of part of your your person. Mm -hmm. But then if you put it away for a long time and you haven't heard it, and then one day you either hear yourself singing or hear somebody else singing, it brings back all kinds of memories. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why sacred objects, they shouldn't be thought of as graven image. They should be thought of as sacred moments that kind of capsulize that place where our, our awareness breaks into something that's marvelous and mysterious and in a sense, eternal. Mm-hmm. So on your website, I, I noticed, uh, I looked at it earlier, and you said you try to give voices to the unheard women mystics of the tradition, the Christian tradition. Um, and I definitely appreciate that because uh, recently I've been reading a lot of, of the women mystics as well, which there are way more than I thought. <laughs> and, good, bravo. And they're all brilliant. So, so who are your inspirations? Well, Mary Magdalene, of course, she's become a very popular figure. Uh, Hildegard Brennan is another one. But as you say, you know, there's a lot more that women have written and a lot more that women have been known for for years. And they just haven't quite had the voice that I as a woman would like them to have. Things can change and well, they should. Um, and I think women are finding their voice. We don't know very much about the women in the Bible. There are a lot of Marys. Mary was a common name. There was Mary of Bethany and Mary of Magda, Magdalena, Mary Magdala. They say those could have been the same women. I kind of doubt it because I think there were, Mary is kind of like, uh, I don't know whether the men decided that all the women were called Mary or in Mexico, for instance, everybody's name is Mary Jane or Mary Luisa or Mary... <laughs> Concepcion, and in Spanish, the boys' names are Valentin, but Jose Valentin, or Jose Luis, or Jose Montenegro. Mm -hmm. So these were sort of tiny names that were put on the fronts of regular names. Having said that, I'm not really so curious about who the women are or what they actually said. I'm more curious about how can they be represented in the Last Supper? Mm -hmm. 
Because if you do a traditional icon in the traditional version of the Byzantine world, there's all the 12 disciples who are all men, which is fine. That's the biblical way they describe it. But that Bible was written 1,500 years ago. So there were probably women there that didn't get mentioned, and they definitely didn't get painted in. So what I've done is tried to take some of those principal icons and place women in significant places. Yeah. Along painting the net, the portrait icons of various women. The problem is there's really not that much to choose from. Um, there aren't very many images of them. So women like me are having to invent them, um, create personages. And again, we have to go back to why icons are special. We're not trying to paint a portrait of a particular woman who wore glasses or who had this hairdo. We're trying to say women are present and women are wise mm -hmm. in the way of music and song and dance. And they were healers and they were mystics and they were theologians and they read and they wrote. Um, in my book that I've written called In Light of Women, there are 27 images of what my kind of three-year revelation was as I took iconography apart and moved women around or included them where they were not included previously. Mm -hmm. I would love to see an icon of the the women involved in Jesus' ministry going and, you know, paying the bills like they did or or the... <laughs> The apostles taking the the letter of Romans and reading it to the church in Rome, like I, I would love to see something like that. That'd be really interesting. But I think it's happening. Um, sometimes I think the whole process is sort of archaic. We're all waking up pretty quickly. Um, but nonetheless, everyone like myself who makes a small effort, or like yourself, reading about them, brings that consciousness of women are are here now and we have always been here mentioned or not is irrelevant but right now as we go through our lives to realize any moment when women are being put aside um is good to raise the awareness no don't put her aside just hear what she wants to say mm -hmm. yeah oftentimes when i'm when i'm speaking with folks or intentionally use feminine pronouns for for god just to just to check myself a little bit, because, you know, of course, it's in the culture and it's in, in habit to use the, you know, traditionally masculine pronouns. But I, I do, um, because of my culture and upbringing too, find value in the, the deeply personal exposition of, of the divine. And sometimes it doesn't quite cut it. Um, no, because it's it's hard to be in relationship with it, you know. Yeah. Um, although I, I do, you know, view God as like a transcendent reality, but in the ways that we can relate to it, it it acts as a person, and I think substituting he for she kind of raises my you know my antenna a lot to where I pay more attention to what's going on and maybe interpret it or characterize it a little differently than I would have if I hadn't you know, reflected on that. I like to think that all of us are kind of redefining what that God is or uh, what the divine is. They're catchwords. They're painful these days. People say, oh, I don't want to be a Christian. And I'm like, but there's so much there to be unfolded. There's so much there to be discovered. Like that 
beautiful image of the lotus opening. We really need to begin to think we're just humans and we have such a small resonance, a small awareness of what's going on Mm -hmm. Um, because we're so dedicated to our cars and our cell phones and our running around, making our lives, caring for our lives. This is all very important, but you really do need to pull back and stop and listen to yourself talk like you just said. Do you um, use icons to for your, for your own contemplative practice, or do you find that you're kind of too close to the work, and do you you know use a different form of of contemplation or meditation? Um, I think that uh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I have used iconography as the practice. So I'm mixing the dirt, I'm watching the particles, I'm following the process of the Byzantine way to create an image. Mm -hmm. I'm copying an image of someone else. And then I, of course, copy some of ones and then they get a little bit lost and changed and transformed. And then the great iconographers will come and say, well, you're not an iconographer because you've broken step. Having said all that, what iconography has taught me is really how to see the world. Mm -hmm. Everything is connected, and it's connected through our capacity to be quiet. Mm-hmm. It gives us an experience where we can ex- we can have more life, where we can witness more life. With all the racket going on in and around the world, without still- stillness, I think our lives are just going to continually be jumbled, mm-hmm. like a monkey mind that's jumping around. It's a global disease. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be crazy or fearful or distracted. I don't want to be in control necessarily. I want to be able to see. Mm -hmm. And you're asking me about my prayer form, but my prayer form is, that's what drives me. I want to learn to see better. Mm -hmm. And I guess I use sight because I'm a visual artist. Yeah. Um, Maybe an artist who was a musician, you'd use your ears. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really matter how you get there. It just, no, I don't really talk about my prayer life very often, my interior prayer life. I was surprised actually when you gave me this opportunity because I thought, what am I going to offer anybody? But I've been doing it an awful long time. I've been probably meditating for 40 years, a long time. Yeah. So I'm sure you have treasure troves of, uh, of things that you could share with us, but it, it is, it is hard to talk about, you know, yourself, at least I find, I find that to be the case. It's, it's easier to talk about external things, but internal things are, are really difficult to talk about sometimes. Yeah. Um, but do you find I, what I, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that it's not that you're using an icon or painting an icon um, to draw your attention towards some other content away from the the busy content of your life towards religious content, you know, like away from secular towards spiritual, but more that it's operating as a way to, to silence what's going on so that you're, you're not just caught up in the, like you said, the ruckus of daily life, but you're actually, present and aware and conscious and observant of the things going on because you're coming from that still place where you're you're watching something 
you know, visually, like you said. Well, you can't really be an iconographer and paint icons and be interrupted a lot and have a lot going on. You really get drawn into a deep silence. And then that same silence isn't just about painting icons. It's a silence that goes everywhere Mm -hmm. with you eventually. And that's what's happened to me. I'm beginning to see the world. This morning I was sitting at my um, kitchen table and there was a calculator, a pen, my glasses, and then breakfast. And I found myself thinking, what do those things have in common? (laughs) It's sort of a silly question. And yes, it's all mind. I don't, I didn't even come up with an answer, but I liked the idea that there was an awareness that those were the items that were on the table. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it even falls into the category of prayer, but it does fall into the category of awareness. Yeah. I've said on here before that I think prayer is just another word for awareness in its true, in its deepest sense. You know, yes, it can mean verbally repeating um, written prayers or scripture, but I think uh, in the term that, you know, the, the Desert Fathers used, you know, pure prayer is, you know, a continual awareness, what the Tibetan Buddhists would call Rigpa, you know, that, yes. that pure, open, cloudless sky that you come mm-hmm. from, and that you're basically reflecting everything like a mirror. I think, I think that's uh, my wish list. Uh, the only thing on my wish list for for the world, because there's so much going on today. I mean, in the news with the impeachment of the president, and you know all the the crazy things going on in the world today, and everyone's coming from a certain perspective. You know, some some good and some bad. But I think if everyone came from that point of stillness that you know contemplative spirituality or icons can bring, then it would just make everyone's job way easier and we could move forward rather than just getting tangled up with each other. I think the system, you know, I don't know who the system is or where the system came from, but they definitely want us to purchase more stuff, to go on vacations, to get drugs and pills, to fix ourselves because we're not happy, to eat more even though we're not hungry, to listen to loud music because it's nice and fast and distractive and we drive our cars and we we buy more electronics and endless numbers of apps, but I don't think most of that is really going to bring us to what you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. So the only advice I have for anybody in the world is find a way to get yourself off of that stuff a little bit every day. Yeah, I've talked about, um, remember when we were kids and there was a seesaw? Mm-hmm. And I remember clearly when I was young at this and I practiced all the different meditations and went to ashrams and did Tai Chi. And I've done thousands of different forms to get myself to be more aware. But I remember clearly there was one day about 10 years into this when most of when I thought about prayer, I go, oh, I've got to make more time to pray. I've got to make more time to pray. And, oh, I'm not praying now. I've got to make time to pray. And then all of a sudden it seems like it, it, it flipped. And then I realized most of my life was prayer. And there were only a few times when I go, oh, I'm not praying. Oh, I'm not praying. Mm -hmm. And whatever that fulcrum is, whatever it took me to get there, um, and it's a hard journey. You've got to leave your friends. I mean, Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, you leave your family and friends and follow me. 
it's the hardest thing I've ever done, I think. Yeah. Um, and you fall down and you get hurt and you get misunderstood. And being a Christian these days, I don't know how many of your um, listeners will agree with this, but if you're a Buddhist, it's a whole lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a Christian, it, we have um, somehow gotten a reputation for being the ones that have hurt the world more than anyone else. And I always say in defense, Yes, but look at the hymns and the mysticism and the beautiful churches we've been to. If you're a tourist and you go traveling in the world, if you're not in those Asian countries, you go to the most beautiful sacred sites in the world. And maybe they're abandoned and they're not being used, but it shows that we still want to see them. We still want to enter into something that's greater than ourselves. Yeah. And there's, they gave it to us, even with the wars and the persecution. You're going to have that. We're humans. Look around. There's volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. Why shouldn't the spiritual world also have lots of mistakes? Yeah, and I, I've noticed that too in um, just reading the the medieval and Egyptian mystics and everything, the early desert fathers, that it's it's crazy because there will be something so profound that they've written and then a paragraph later, it'll be something that's completely from egotism, from patriarchy, from, you know, and it's, and it's all interwoven in there. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it kind of checks you because, you know, I'll be reading it and I'll be like, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is profound. And then I'll get hit with this piece that I have no idea what to do with. And, you know, instinct is to just say, just write that author off and just say like, oh, well, they're a misogynist or they're, you know, whatever, um, or they're racist or this and that. But like to apply, I guess, cancel culture to retroactively to the church fathers. But I think you have to take both things with a grain of salt and realize that there's, it's, it's all uh, coming through the, the medium of humanity. So we're not going to get it exactly right ever, which is both discouraging and uh, heartening at the same time, I guess, depending on how, how you look at it. At the end of your questions, when we started, you mentioned Lectio Divina, which is a great, um, it's a great system for getting the mind focused in Christianity. Um, I don't know how often it gets used around the world anymore. It's a pretty old prayer form. On the other hand, it speaks to exactly what you're saying. If we use our minds and reduce it to a little mantra or reduce it to a little phrase that you read that, that has inspired you, it's a lot easier to navigate through that world of God. Mm -hmm. The world of God is so big. And then we have our level of, of being here on the planet, the physical world. Mm -hmm. The physical world is dragging us every which way, you know, trying to distract us, make us fall down, make us have more, when really the spiritual world just contains everything. Mm -hmm. But the only way to make access to that is reducing it. And you do, in a sense, have to throw out stuff that doesn't work. You have to um, just simplify your life. Like I said, it's all about silence and simplification. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the key as far as I'm concerned. So, And it's not, it, it isn't going to be simple by itself. You have to make time to edit out everything and just focus on one word or one phrase. Mm -hmm. And begin with five minutes a day, begin with 20 minutes a day. And eventually you'll find, I can't wait to sit and do nothing. I can't, sometimes I just walk across the room and just sit down, close my eyes. Mm -hmm. 
period. Yeah. Not with an agenda, but just because I just need to rest. Yeah. Yeah, that, that Sabbath rest is uh, having a regular time, I think, is is good. Like I, I've, I've heard people talk about it, their morning sitting meditation as their, their Sabbath of the day, they're resting mm-hmm. to prepare for the rest of the day because a lot of times as soon as our eyes open, you know, we pick up our phone, <laughs> we scroll through our email, you know, we're like, all right, what do I have to do today? And, and we, we come from that place of, of chaos um, and I see I see people online sometimes um, talking about how guilty they feel, and that it's that sense of guilt that oh, like I, I don't pray enough, or um, I don't read my Bible enough, or I don't uh, meditate enough, or whatever it may be. I think like you, a lot of times we don't notice that we we are praying in a way, just not in the formal way. And I just, although there's a lot to be said about having a dedicated practice and the discipline that, you know, that comes with that, uh, personally, at least, I don't find like the, the, the guilt aspect of it when, when I've done it to myself to be, to be helpful, because the more I guilt myself about, uh, about not practicing, the more I dread actually practicing. So <laughs> if I, if I cut myself some slack, it tends to, to make the whole process a little easier. And then, and then I maybe don't have to carve out a specific time. I can actually incorporate the practice into my daily activity like you were talking about. I think that's the trick. Um, you begin with a style. You try different forms. You find one that works. But eventually it's like you've eaten everything on the menu and you've tried every single kind of carrot and you've cut it every way and put it in the blender. But eventually you get to the place where just sit down. Yeah. You don't need a technique. You just sit down. Mm-hmm. My mom used to say, all the knowledge in the world is within you. Now, I think that's an amazing thing for a mother to say to a kid. Yeah. But I'm older now. I'm 67. I I believe she's right. All we need to do is sit down. And we're never going to know. We'll know everything, but we won't be aware of everything. Mm-hmm. But we can be aware of just our breathing. And that's a world of its own. Mm-hmm. And if you missed it in the morning, then when you remember, then sit down. Just yeah. sit down. <laughs> you don't need a place. <laughs> place is a good thing to begin, you know, that whole discipline thing. But after a while, it's so rich, you can do it anywhere, on a bus stop, on a sidewalk, in the middle of the dinner. Yeah, or or as the you know the Bible explicates, uh, you eventually have to come down from the mountain yeah, to go no, that into the a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's more of that seesaw idea. I like staying up where I am. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. You recorded a video for us, so um, what will we be uh, watching and participating in in that video? What I tried to do was take take the audience to the way I see. And the the small little six minutes is a fast version of something that really should take a little, a little, a great deal of time more, but it's the idea. Uh, open your eyes, pick something to look at. who you are. Let it explain how you are in the world. 
it's perhaps more mind and thinking for some people who want to do meditation. There's an awful lot of meditation that says, oh, and I want to have thoughts and I want to have feelings and revelations. Revelations come after the prayer when you go, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. It's unexpected. Designing a time where you sit and you're quiet every day will allow your mind to be less jumbled. Mm-hmm. So what I did with the little video was I tried to, literally, I did one take and I sat down with a leaf and we talked about the leaf and that was it. It's just an introduction. You can do it with anything. And so for someone that maybe has uh, an icon, they could follow that same process with that icon. Yes, I suppose. I mean, like I said, I don't really pray with icons. I'm an iconographer. I paint them. Mm-hmm. The idea of Christianity is very, very large. Mm-hmm. It's not really just the Bible. It includes the Quran and all the Buddhists and all the mystics who have ever walked and the ones that wrote things down, the ones who didn't, and the ones that are going to write things down. I mean, I would never ask anybody to follow me. <laughs> <laughs> I would ask everybody to follow themselves. Yeah. Mary Jane, this has been awesome talking to you. Sorry it uh, it took so long and we've had some technical problems with the internet and whatnot, but um, I really enjoyed it and we should talk again in the future. Well, thank you, Jory. Uh, interviews like this help people like me to focus and try to answer what is it we are really doing. Yeah. Um, if you want to find more about what I'm doing, uh, just Google Mary Jane Miller on the internet and it pulls up all the websites and all the information about the workshops that are uh, the last week in February and the first week in March. One is in Vero Beach and the other one is Vero Beach, Florida and the other one is in Delaware, Lewis, Delaware. And if you're interested in reading about um, the absence of women in iconography or how to paint an icon or I have several other books, go to lulu.com and just print in the author's name, Mary Jane Miller, and the books come up. And again, thank you so much for being with me today here and peace be with everybody. All right. Thank you, Mary Jane. All right, everyone click on the next episode to be led through a meditation with Mary Jane Miller.